0: Friend of mine, Jay Siegert, he was with us about 10 years ago, and he is the founder and director of Starting Point Ministries, Starting Point Project. And he's dedicated, he's basically a Christian apologist. (laughs) He's dedicated to educating Christians uh, in the area of science as well as creation and. The reason I love Jay so much, and I do, is because he is so firmly rooted in the Word of God. And this morning, he's going to be talking to us about scientific evidence that bolsters the inerrancy of Scripture. And I'm looking forward to that. Yesterday, we had a whole day with him, and he talked about evolution, uh, probable or problematic, creation, the case from science, Dinosaurs in the Bible, that was interesting. Faith is not a four-letter word that needs some description there. I'll let you talk to him about that. The Genesis flood, this changes everything. And creation in six days of biblical and scientific analysis. Uh, He generously has allowed us to live stream that yesterday, but also record it, and it will be up on our website. But Starting Point Project also has many uh, videos and uh, materials that you can get, and he 's got a table back here too, so with that, Jay, please come forward we 're really looking forward. Thank you so much for coming
1: Well, good morning. It is an honor to be back here again for for my benefit. How many of you were not here yesterday? Okay, quite a few. How many of you just wish you were not here yesterday? <laughs> It was a marathon. We covered a lot, uh, and even though I had the whole day to talk, I mentioned that James 1.19 says be slow to speak, but it doesn't say speak slow. So I go fast no matter how much time you give me, and, and I'm going to go kind of fast this morning, and the point isn't to teach you tons of details to memorize. It's to overwhelm you with the fact that you can trust quite a bit of what's in the Bible. <clears throat> I said that yesterday. <laughs> Get your attention. No everything that's in the Bible, <laughs> cover to cover, even even the cover, it says Holy Bible, you can trust that too. <laughs> um, we're going to be taking a look, basically the bigger question is how do we know that God wrote the Bible? I mean, there's a lot of other books out there, we're going to be addressing that. With the time we have, we're going to be focusing on the scientific evidence for that, there are other areas of evidence as well, which I'll mention in just a second. Um, some of you have the pleasure of not really knowing much about me, so I will... Go over my background, those of you here yesterday have seen this before, but uh, just very quickly with my background, uh, I was raised in a Christian home, and I always say you can tell very clearly that that is a Christian home, and, you know, taught the Bible, cover to cover, believed the whole thing, never really questioned it, probably didn't think about it as much as I could have, but, you know, I didn't doubt it at all. I went to public schools all the way through high school, and when I graduated, I went to a Christian college, John Brown University in Arkansas to study mechanical engineering. Got a degree there, but then I became more interested in physics. But they didn't have a physics major there, so I left and went back to Wisconsin, where I'm from, and went to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater to get a degree in physics. And that's when my world changed quite a bit, going from that small Christian college, where my engineering professors actually opened up every class in prayer. Then I went to the state university, and my physics professors did not open up a prayer. and Maybe they forgot. Um, uh, They were certainly all evolutionists, and some of them were atheists. And they were telling me that everything I believed was wrong, and that made me very uncomfortable to be surrounded by those PhD scientists who I assumed had a lot of evidence for what they believed, actually found out later they had none. <laughs> it's a whole other story, literally. I mean, I asked each one of them, and not one example could they give me. So anyway, but I assumed at the time, you know, hey, PhD scientists, you know, they got evidence for what they believed, and I realized... Personally, for the first time in my entire life, that even though I knew what I believed, I did not know why. I couldn't defend the Christian worldview. I didn't think about it. It's just like, well, it's true, right? And then all of a sudden, all my professors are telling me, no, it's not true, and they supposedly could disprove it. So God put it on my heart at that point in my life to start looking into things. (laughs) So I've been looking into things (laughs) for 38 years now. And about 17 years ago, I felt called into full-time ministry with this. at the time I was doing computer programming and moved into full-time ministry, founded the Starting Point Project. It's all about our starting point. It's, uh, I gave a talk on that yesterday. Uh, Christians start with the belief that God exists, and the Bible's his word. And then we use that starting point to define everything else, what science and logic actually are, history, morality, ethics, philosophy, all those things are defined by our starting point. You guys, don't want to go off into that talk right now, but that's why we use the name the Starting Point Project. I was also invited to be on the board of directors of Logos research associates this is the world's largest consortium of scientists on the planet who are christians and creationists the founding member of this group is dr john sanford he was from cornell university a professor there he was actually an atheist for much of his life he's worldwide famous for having invented something called the gene gun that inserts genes into the dna a very brilliant scientist very godly man very humble as well Also, there's Dr. John Baumgartner. He's a PhD geophysicist. He just happened to build the world's best 3D computer simulation of plate tectonics. It's just off the charts brilliant. So there's those two guys, myself and a few other board members. As smart as these guys are, and they are brilliant, they were here this morning, they'd be the first to admit, out of all six board members, I am the tallest. (laughs) So (laughs) pretty proud of that. (laughs) Um... Actually, we had a board meeting a couple months ago, and uh, they asked me to step up and become president. So I'm president of the group now, which means I have lost all respect for them. (laughs) So, great group of guys. So I get to hang around them, and they're doing cutting-edge research. And I get to glean from that and then convert it into something we call English, (laughs) so that everyone else can actually understand it. So it's just cool to be associated with them. It's an honor to be involved with them. But back to the talk for this morning, scientific evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. As I travel around, I travel around the country, I've been in eight other countries, I ask Christians a specific question. Why are you a Christian? And they'll often say, well, because I believe the Bible. Well, that makes sense. Why do you believe the Bible? Well, because I'm a Christian. <laughs> Why are you a Christian? Because I believe the Bible. Why do you believe the Bible? Because I'm a Christian, and round and round. How do you know the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Uh, I, j- I just know. I mean, it says it is. I mean, that's what I believe. I mean, I feel it. <laughs> Great. Why should anyone else believe it? Because you feel it, including your own children and grandchildren. <laughs> We've got a problem right now. You know, probably three quarters or whatever of Christian youth are walking away from their faith before they finish college because they're handed a set of beliefs without convictions. I don't really know why it's true. Someone told them it is, and it's fine. And all of a sudden, they get lambasted by professors with all these supposed evidences that it's not true. We need to go further just saying, well, we just believe it. You just, you just got to believe it. You know, this is what I've chosen, so trust me. No, don't trust me. We, we should be giving them reasons why the Bible is what it claims to be. We need to go further. I'm going to play a portion of a radio interview for you next. It's only about 90 seconds, and here's the background. This radio program is hosted by an atheist. It's his program. The caller is a pastor. They're talking about the existence of God. The first voice you're going to hear is the atheist. The second voice on the phone is the pastor. So I'll play it, and then we will discuss it briefly. I'll try it again.
2: (laughs) Everybody knows that God exists. Let me,
1: me, I'll start this over real quick.
2: Here we go. So you disagree because you're, you're convinced, probably because of Romans 1, that everybody knows that God exists? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you believe Romans 1? Uh, Because it's the Bible. Okay, why do you believe the Bible? I wasn't necessarily prepared for that particular question. Um, You're a preacher and you're not prepared for a question on why you believe the Bible? I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just, I mean, this, this to me is like, the, the basics, what, what? why would anybody believe, why would I, Why should I care what the Bible has the, to say? The reason, the reason why I'm not prepared for that particular question is because you didn't answer what I had to say. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm point sorry, very I, poignant. I, I, I might have missed a question. What was the question? Because all I heard was you saying you disagreed. Uh, I was trying to make a point to you. It wasn't necessarily a question. My point was. Well, then how can you accuse me of not knows. answering your question if you didn't ask the question? Your point is that everybody knows that God exists, and I don't agree with that. And I'm asking you to prove that it's true. It's not about proving that it's true. You you, you can never uh, prove that it's true. Then then we are are in an impasse. And thank you for acknowledging that you can never prove it's true, which demonstrates it's irrational. I'm going to have to ask you to call back because we've run out of time.
1: Okay, let's close in prayer. (laughs) 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 Would that be depressing? I actually think that atheist host was very gracious. And I think most pastors would have a better response, especially Pastor Steve. (laughs) But here's a bigger question for you this morning. What would your response have been had you called into this program and that atheist asked you that question? It's usually where I get the deer in the headlights. It's just, "Ah, I, I don't know, help. That's what the rest of this talk is going to be about. What should our response be When people like that very intelligent atheist ask extremely reasonable questions. If I was an atheist, I'd have two questions right off the bat How do you know God exists? And how do you know the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Most Christians I run into are not good at answering those questions. They're fumbling around as if they never really thought it before. That does not look good. These are basic questions. You should have at least an initial short answer and say, if you want more information, I can share a little bit more. But we're always like, well, you know, I know God created everything because it's just, you know, look around. It's a beautiful world. And and the Bible is just powerful. I mean, it just really means a lot and changed my life. And that doesn't cut it. So we're going to go a little bit further here this morning. And I have a quiz for you before we get any further. I'm going to put a passage up on the screen, see if you can tell me where it's found. And the Messiah cometh forth in the fullness of time, that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because that they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil. Some people say, oh, is that uh, Isaiah, right? Nope. Jeremiah? Nope. That's not Psalms. No, it's not Psalms. Here's where it's from. Second Nephi chapter 2, verse 26. It's like, second what? <laughs> it's the Book of Mormon. Oh, that's weird. Here's a bigger question. How do you know the Book of Mormon is not the inspired Word of God? That's not. How do you know it's not? Because the Bible is. How do you know the Bible is? Because I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Because I believe the Bible. What about the Book of Mormon? It's not. Why is it not? Because the Bible is. <laughs> and Round and round. Mormons believe it's the, the Word of God right on the cover. It says another testament of Jesus Christ given to the angel Moroni down to Joseph Smith on some gold tablets. Interesting story. We don't have time for all the details there. There's no shortage of books out there that are religious in nature. How do we know which of these, this is just a sampling, how do we know which of these are the inspired Word of God? Maybe they all are. Maybe none of them are. Maybe just two, two of them are. How would you know? Good question. There was a debate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison a few years ago. A friend of mine asked if I'd go with him. And I said, you know, sure. And the topic was, would the world be better off without religion? I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go, you can come pick me up. I said, I would I would actually not be part of that debate, but I'll I'll go and listen. He said, Why wouldn't you be part of that debate? I said, because I'm not a religious person. Because what are you talking about? You travel around the world talking about God and the Bible and Jesus and creation and all that. Here's why I say that. I think religion is man's idea of God. The reason we have so many different religions is there's so many different people, and they all have their own idea of who God is, what he is, why we're here, what happens to us when we die. I'm not really that interested in finding out what everyone else thinks about God. On the other hand, I think the Bible is God's idea of God. (laughs) and That fascinates me to no end. So while I say I'm not a religious person, I am a Christian, and I believe the Bible from cover to cover. Now, I realize Christianity is considered to be one of the world's religions. So fine. I guess in that sense I'm a religious person, but I like to make the distinction between man's idea of God and God's idea about himself. Which makes it even more important for us to know. How do we know the Bible is really God's idea about himself? How would we know? How many of you actually have a book at home that was signed by the author? A number of you. The rest of you can buy my books. I'll sign them. Um, (laughs) It's kind of neat. You can get a book out and you show someone, Yeah, you met the author. Wouldn't it be cool to have an autographed copy of the Bible? It makes your head spin thinking about it a little bit. I think we do. I think God's signature is all over his word. But how would we know? How would we know that God wrote the Bible? How would we know that God wrote any book? If you think about it, let's say there was a book out there and it was written by God. How would you know by looking at it? Well, I'd expect at least four things. I would expect it to be internally consistent. If the book you're looking at contradicts itself, good evidence God didn't write that. We're going to go through four tests here. These are not Bible tests. Here's a test you can use against any religious writing to see if it shows evidence of being inspired by God. So if it contradicts itself, that's pretty good evidence right off the bat that God didn't write that. Historical accuracy. If it gets history wrong, that's pretty good evidence God didn't write that. He would know history. Prophetic accuracy. If it makes predictions about the future and they've been proven false, great evidence God didn't write that either. He would know the future. And then lastly, Scientific accuracy. If the book you're looking at makes statements that can actually be tested directly by science and it's been proven false, we can see that. Pretty good evidence God didn't write that because he would know science. With the time we have, we're only going to take a look briefly at this last one, scientific accuracy, which we also call scientific foreknowledge. What does that mean? Here's the point. The Bible was written quite a while ago, <laughs> roughly 1500 B.C. to about 400 B.C. Third Old Testament, New Testament, roughly 40 to about 100 A.D. Long before we had microscopes and telescopes. But there are things in the Bible that scientists are seeing that they're thinking, oh, wait a minute. That's right. But they couldn't have known that back then. And that's true. There's no way they could have known many of these things, which is evidence that God told them what's right because they couldn't have known it on their own. That's the premise of the rest of this presentation here. You may be familiar with Bill Nye, the science guy, I mentioned yesterday that I actually think he's a pretty gifted speaker. I think he does a great job when he's teaching youth about electricity and magnetism and things like that. But when he starts talking about things that happen in the unobserved past, like the origin of the universe and the origin of life, I think his ideas are way off, and he's no friend of Christians or creationists. This is what he said. I say to the grown-ups, if you want to deny evolution and live in your world... In your world, that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe. That's fine, but don't make your kids do it because we need them. We need scientifically literate voters and taxpayers for the future. We need people that can. We need engineers that can build stuff, solve problems. What's he saying? He's saying if you as an adult want to reject evolution, believe in this fairy tale of creation, I guess that's okay, but please don't make your kids do that. If your children don't believe in evolution... They won't be able to do science. We won't be able to land on Mars someday and cure more diseases and all that. You have to believe in evolution to be able to do science. Okay? That's his opinion. Bill Nye's not a scientist. <clears throat> he's an engineer, but he's a pretty sharp guy, and that's his opinion. He's entitled to his opinion. I'm going to give you a quote from someone who actually is a scientist. He's not a Christian. Dr. Mark Kirschner. He happens to be the founding chair of the Department of Systems Biology at Harvard Medical School. <laughs> You can't be too dumb and have that position. <coughs> this is what he said. In fact, over the last 100 years, almost all of biology has proceeded independent of evolution. Molecular biology, biochemistry, physiology have not taken evolution into account at all. What's he saying? He's saying these men and women do their jobs all day long, all year long, totally independent of whether or not they believe in evolution. That so said has nothing to do with that. And I think he's in a better position to comment on science, and I would agree with them. Truth is, most major areas of science we have today were founded by Bible-believing Christians. If you'd like some examples, I brought a few along. Antiseptic surgery, bacteriology, calculus, chemistry, computer science, electronics, electrodynamics, electromagnetics, fluid mechanics, galactic astronomy, gas dynamics, genetics... Hydraulics, hydrostatics, oceanography, optical mineralogy, paleontology, pathology, physical astronomy, stratigraphy, thermodynamics, thermokinetics, vertebrate, paleontology, and a scientific method, all founded by Bible-believing Christians. Anyone who says no real scientist believes the Bible, they don't only not understand science, they don't even know history. This is where science came from, it was birthed out of the Christian community. And scientists know that, they just don't like to admit it that often. Truth is, not only is belief in evolution not Required to do science, belief in evolution actually gets in the way of doing good science. It's a hindrance. Here's one example, something called vestigial organs. A quote from Jerry Coyne, University of Chicago, one of the leading evolutionists. He said, we humans have many vestigial features proving that we evolved. The most popular is the appendix. Our appendix is simply the remnant of an organ that was critically important to our leaf-eating ancestors, but is of no real value to us. So the point is, there are things in our body that don't really have a purpose. Oh, They used to in earlier stages of evolution, but now they're not really doing anything. Sometimes completely useless. Scientists used to have a list of 86 things in your body that don't do anything. Proof of evolution. It's actually used the famous monkey trial and scopes trial in 1925. God would not design you with all these things in your body that aren't doing anything. Well... They've studied this list and they dwindled it down just a little bit, down to zero. (laughs) They have found a use for every single one of those things, including the appendix. It's part of the immune system. It has a purpose. Can you live without your appendix? Yes, some of you here might not have your appendix right now. You can also live without your arms. doesn't mean they don't have a purpose. (laughs) fact, doctors today are very hesitant to take the appendix out. Now, if it's going to burst, yeah, you might need to get it out of there. But otherwise, leave it in if you can, because it's part of a functional system. But it was belief in evolution to say, just rip it out, it's not doing anything, proof of evolution. Whereas a creationist back then would say, we don't fully understand this yet, but let's keep studying. We believe this was designed by God. And by studying it further, they found the design purpose. Same thing with a concept called junk DNA. When scientists were looking at DNA, you can see it's very complex, but it only seemed like 2% of the DNA did anything. It coded to make proteins that carry out all the functions in your body. The other 98%? it's useless. It's not doing anything. Proof of evolution. Godwin Design uses it. 98% of your DNA doesn't do anything. Well, they studied it further. Now they know the 98% they were calling junk. It's more complex than the 2%. It's instructions. Telling the 2% what to do. It is blowing them away how complex it is. That first talk I gave yesterday was about DNA. It's just It just blows you away when you see how complex this is. Big mistake, but it was belief in evolution got them to write it off. Whereas the creationists would say, wow, we don't understand this. Let's keep looking. And they kept looking, and we found the design. Here's a quote from an evolutionist talking about that supposed junk DNA. The failure to recognize the implications of non-coding DNA. That's what they were calling junk will go down as the biggest mistake in the history of molecular biology. (laughs) He's saying, big, big mistake to ever call that junk. Well, it was belief in evolution that drove that conclusion. But then people say, yeah, but the Bible's not a science textbook. And I would completely agree with that. It is not a science textbook. And I'm glad it's not, because it would be harder to read, fewer people would understand it, and more importantly, it would have to be corrected and updated continually and constantly like science textbooks. So much has changed since I got my degree in physics because I keep discovering new things and realize they were really off on something. Now they think this and then that's wrong and now they think it's this. That's just the nature of science. just kind of how it works. But even though this is God's first shot at writing a book, I think he did a pretty good job. (laughs) And it doesn't have to be corrected and updated continually like science textbooks. So it's not a science textbook. God didn't write it to tell you that the mass of an electron is 9.1 times 10 to the negative 31st kilograms. <laughs> Not the point. But it does provide something very, very important. And that is a framework through which we can understand science. Guess what? Facts don't speak for themselves. They're just facts. They're just sitting there. They have to be interpreted And you have to use what you currently believe to look at facts and say, this is what you think about those things. You interpret them using what you already believe, your framework, your starting point, your worldview. And the Bible is the only thing that provides an accurate framework to properly, consistently interpret and understand science. It's very powerful. As an example, the Bible does talk about astronomy and it helps us to properly understand what we're seeing. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, where the heavens made their starry host by the breath of his mouth. God is the one who created this universe and his fingerprints are all over it. Secular astronomers will say, no, see, see these swirling gases over here? It's the birth of a star. You are seeing the birth of a star. They'll get emotional. It's so beautiful, these swirling gases. Guess what they're seeing? Swirling gases. Yeah, but you've got to understand, you know, gravity wants to uh, you know, pull them together. Yeah, I know the formula, F sub G equals capital G, M1 times M2 over R squared. (laughs) Gravity wants to pull the particles together. Problem. (laughs) The closer the particles get together, the more gas pressure you have pushing them out. Gas pressure is much stronger than gravity. They won't pull together on their own. Okay, well, that's true, but what happened was there was a star over here that exploded, and that force pushed these gases together. Physics don't really work, but nice story. i got another question, though. Where'd that star come from that exploded? Well, you see, that was swirling gases, and there was a star over here that exploded. Push that one together. I got another question. you have any idea what it might be? Where'd that star come from? They can't, they can't get the process started. Again, laws of physics mitigate against that. Then we have Jeremiah thirty-three twenty-two: As a host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of sea measured, so I will multiply the seed of David my servant. Jeremiah, writing over 2,500 years ago, said the stars are uncountable. I can't imagine that made any sense to him when he was saying that, because he could look up at the night sky and see a countable number of stars. Pretty much the same stars we see. Any spot on the earth, you can look up in the sky with the naked eye, you can count about 3,000 stars. That's a lot of stars. It's not uncountable. So why would you look at a countable number of stars and say they're uncountable? Well, guess what? Today, secular astronomers say, I don't know, 10 trillion trillion stars. We don't know how many stars there are, but it could be something like that. Just this ballpark figure. It's enormous. It's uncountable. We know that now because we have telescopes. And they're saying just what Jeremiah said. Yeah, it's uncountable, even though he didn't have the telescope. Today we have telescopes, the Hubble telescope, and more recently now the James Webb. I just did a TV interview on that last Monday, the James Webb telescope and what they're discovering. Well, we've had telescopes for quite a while. And astronomers wonder about space, is it pretty much the same everywhere we look? Or are there areas where it's kind of dark and empty and other areas that are full of stars and galaxies and planets and all that? So they took the Hubble telescope and they focused it on a spot in the sky that was equivalent to one twenty-four millionth of the whole thing. This is the Hubble deep field. So leave the aperture open for a while. It looks kind of dark. See if there's anything out there at all. This is what developed in that spot. Three thousand stars. Uh, except those aren't stars. Those are galaxies. <laughs> 3,000 galaxies, each of which they're guessing has 100 billion stars in it, in one spot of the sky. That's 124 millionth of the whole thing. Pretty big. Then they had the Hubble Extreme Deep Field. This is 132 millionth of the entire sky. What did they find there? They found 5,500 galaxies. <laughs> each of which has probably 100 billion stars. And then more recently, the Hubble legacy field, they discovered 265,000 galaxies, each of which has 100 billion stars. Are the stars uncountable? Yep. Just like Jeremiah said over 2,500 years ago when he didn't have a telescope. The Bible gives us a framework to properly understand geology. You can go to different spots of the earth and see these layers exposed, like the Grand Canyon there. It is an absolute fact there are many layers all over the planet. An atheist can go to the Grand Canyon today, stand there, and see the layers. A Christian can go stand right next to the atheist and see the layers in the earth. That's just a fact. How the layers got there, that's another question. Because the atheist was not there to see them being deposited, and neither was the Christian. So they're both looking at this saying, how is it that all these layers got here? The Bible gives us a framework to understand that. I have a whole talk on it yesterday. Genesis 6, 17, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has a breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. Genesis 6 through 8 says there was a worldwide flood. Okay, if that actually happened, let's humor ourselves and say the Bible is actually true and there was a worldwide flood. What would we expect to see if that really happened? We would expect to see sedimentary layers laid down catastrophically by water all over the planet. And these layers would be probably filled with fossils because things that were living could have gotten buried and preserved. What do we see? All over the planet we see sedimentary layers laid down catastrophically by water filled with billions and billions of fossils. (laughs) It makes sense. The Bible gives us a framework that makes sense of what we're seeing in the real world. And there's so much more to it than that. I mentioned yesterday that I lead Grand Canyon tours. And the purpose of our Grand Canyon tours isn't just to see the Grand Canyon. Anyone can go. Many people do. They, every year they go and they see the Grand Canyon. They get there and think, wow, this is this is amazing. I've seen pictures, but this is just so much better than the picture. I can't believe this. And an hour later, they're thinking the same thing. This is really amazing. And three hours later, this is amazing. You don't know what else to think other than it's just, I've never seen it. This is really cool. And then you go home. And you show people your pictures, and they're like, yeah, it looks kind of neat. No, it wasn't neat. It was just amazing. You can't convey what it was like standing there. We take people there, and we point out evidence for the authority of God's word. There was a worldwide flood. Just like the Bible says, we point out all the evidence. Grand Canyon is probably the best spot on the planet to see evidences for the worldwide flood. So we spend one day on the rim. Just walk. It's, a, it's a family-friendly trip. You're not rappelling and climbing down into the canyon, all that. You're walking along a flat paved path. And then the next day, we're on the river, and we take a bus to get down there. And it's not whitewater rafting, smooth sailing. We had kids go, five years old. We had a couple, they were 80-year-olds, go. They loved it. And it's all about the authority of God's word all throughout the trip. Stay in hotels, eat at nice restaurants and things like that, really easy trip. I'll show you a quick two-minute promo uh, for what these things are like. Welcome to the Grand Canyon. You've all seen pictures come and see the real thing. Jay Segert here with the Starting Point Project to invite you to come along on one of our Grand Canyon tours where you will be on the top rim of the canyon looking down and you'll also get to be on the Colorado River. And all throughout our trip, we share scientific evidences that there really was a worldwide flood, just like we learned from Genesis six through eight. We know there was worldwide flood action, but not always the same way you see here we want to take you from being in a position where you are praying and hoping that no one asks you about this flood story and Noah's Ark and all that, to a point where you're thinking, please, please ask me. Just learning about the creation theory and being able to really be equipped to defend that theory. chance to learn a little bit more about just what God's done in the past and uh, His beautiful world that He created. The only explanation for the canyon is really catastrophic water action. Easy to understand, but yet profound. It helps me to articulate what I believe so much better. You'll be so excited about the authority of God's word that it can be trusted from cover to cover so that you can be more emboldened when you're graciously sharing the gospel message with those around you. The problem isn't the evidence, because facts don't speak for themselves. What was your favorite part? The dinosaur tracks. Dinosaur tracks? Yeah, it's pretty cool.
0: It's unbelievable. You have to see it in person.
1: It is an amazing place to visit, and we want to go on this journey with you. So get a hold of us to learn about the details of our trips, which you can find at thestartingpointproject.com. So well, it gives you a quick visual of the trip. Again, the focus is really the authority of God's Word. People come away from the trip so fired up in their faith, and a lot less intimidated by the Old Testament. because some of those things, you're just like, I know it says it, but you know, I don't. Did it really happen? Is there really any evidence? And how could you have the ark? And all those things, you get so excited, going, Wow, it's so reasonable. There's so much evidence. And in turn, you don't go out and then try to pick an argument with someone about the flood. You go out and you share the gospel message, knowing if they bring up. Challenging questions about the flood or carbon-14 dating or dinosaurs or all the violence in the Old Testament or evil in the world today. And all those things which we address throughout the whole trip, you're not worried about those. You know answers exist, even if you've forgotten. You know you can get back to them. But then it doesn't keep you from being hesitant to share the gospel message. So anyway, if you're interested in that, we've got a brochure on our table out there. We're doing five trips. mentioned yesterday very quickly there was one exclusive one in October for another group, and they just had to back out, unfortunately. So, we're not sure we'll either find another group to kind of take that one on, or cancel that trip. But four or five trips from the end of June through October. Uh, again, brochure will give you more information, or you get that on our website as well. So, moving on back to the talk here, we're talking about frameworks for understanding science. The Bible provides a framework to properly understand biology. Nehemiah nine six. You give life to everything in the multitudes of heaven worship you. God is the one who created life and his fingerprints are all over it. Today we have something called the law of biogenesis which states that life always and only comes from pre-existing life. It's so consistent we made a law out of it. We've never ever, ever seen an exception. Every time we see a living thing, it came from something else that was living. Never an exception. So why do we teach in every public school and every state university that 3.8 billion years ago, non-living, dead chemicals came together to form a living cell? I love that story. There's just no evidence. In fact, the more they study this, the further they are away from figuring out how dead chemicals could become alive and uh, copy themselves. It's very, very complex. Here's a quote from an evolutionist. He said, the belief that life on earth arose spontaneously from non-living matter is simply a matter of faith. Wait a minute, scientists don't have faith. They're in the laboratory proving things, right? No, he's saying they have faith. And not only is it a faith, it is a blind faith unreasonable faith because it's going against everything that we're learning in science today. Genesis and God said, let the land produce creatures according to their kinds. Ten times in Genesis 1, God says he created creatures to reproduce after their kind. Can they produce a variety? Yeah, great variety, but always within distinct limits. That's what we're seeing in biology today. In fact, today, dogs, dingoes, coyotes, and wolves can all breed together. And when you breed them together, you get something that looks like a dog, dingo, coyote, or a wolf. You can breed a dog and a wolf, and you get a wolf-dog. It's real science, real biology, fits in with Scripture, so it looks a little bit like the wolf, a little bit like the dog. But you can't breed a wolf and a dog and get an ostrich, (laughs) because they don't have genetic information to make beaks and feathers. So yeah, you can get that variety, but it's always within limits. Just like scripture said a long time ago when we didn't have biology. Leviticus 17:11 for the life of the flesh is in the blood. We know blood is very very important for life. Every human red blood cell contains about 270 million molecules of hemoglobin, carries oxygen throughout your body. You've had a slight amount less you'd be dead. What's interesting about that is doctors used to drain blood out of people's bodies when they got sick. It's largely how George Washington died. He got pneumonia. He goes to the doctor. They go, Oh, this guy's sick. We've got to get some of that bad blood out of him. So they drain some blood. He got sicker. He's like, Oh, this guy's really sick. So they drain some more blood. And he got sicker. It's like, This guy's really sick. They ended up draining about a gallon of blood out of him, and he died. No surprise today, we know you don't do that. The life of the flesh is in the blood. That's what the Bible said a long time ago. The reason I have a picture of a barber pole up there is you used to be able to go to the barber to have your blood drained. Some of you might remember that. It's called a the bloodletting. They would give you a cylinder like that to grasp, make a fist, cut your arm, drain some blood. Sometimes they'd wrap a towel around there to help stop the bleeding and absorb some blood. Sometimes they would take the used towels, hang them on the cylinder, and the wind would catch it and it would wrap around the pole. That's why today barber poles have red stripes. It's true. Free trivia. I won't charge you for that one. Next time you see a barber pole, think about that. Maybe share some of what you're learning here with whoever is around you. Exodus 15, 26. If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord, thy God, I will put none of these diseases upon thee. This is so amazing. This is worth the price of admission. Um. I'm going to give you the backdrop here. If you haven't heard this before, this is, just, this is going to make you smile all day. Backdrop. God creates everything to begin with, and it's perfect. creates Adam and Eve. They're perfect. They sin. They disobey God. They get kicked out of the garden, separate themselves from their creator. God could have just smashed them and started over. But he said, no, I, I love them too much. I got a plan, which was that God was going to send his son to die on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. The entire Old Testament is God playing out that plan, which included God choosing a group of people. Abraham's descendants were the Hebrews, who become the Israelites and the Jews, those are God's chosen people, through which the Messiah would come. The Old Testament is also Satan, who hates God, trying to ruin that plan. So the entire Old Testament is Satan trying to wipe out the Jews, because if he can, Messiah can't come. And God trying to protect his people. In this passage... Moses is saying, listen to the health practices that God is giving us, and we won't see the diseases that are affecting the nations around us. But now we know from the book of Acts that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He went to Egypt You, (laughs) Well, today, if someone goes to a state university and they get a Ph.D., and then they write some books, you would expect that a lot of the information in those books would have come from what they learned at the university. It's just kind of how it works. Well, Moses goes to Egypt you, and then he writes five books. You probably knew that. The first five books of the Bible. So do we see Egyptian wisdom in the Bible? We should if Moses made it up on his own. And that's what skeptics say. Moses was an ignorant goat herder, wrote a bunch of stuff down, and now he got another option for religion. That's what they believe. Okay, let's take a look at his education. Egyptian wisdom. This is the Ebers papyrus written in 1550 B.C. contains over 800 magical formulas and remedies for things. One example was if you got a splinter, you're supposed to apply worm blood and donkey dung. Yikes. Modern scientists say you do not want to do that. It causes spores. You can get lockjaw. You can get very sick. You could die. That's the kind of stuff Moses was educated in. So do we see things like that in the Bible? We should if Moses wrote it on his own. Let's take a look at what we actually see from Moses in the Bible. Moses talked about touching a dead body. Now today we know about bacteria and germ theory, especially with all the COVID stuff. You don't want to touch a dead animal. You could get germs from that. You could get really sick. You could maybe even die. This is what Moses wrote about touching a dead body in Numbers chapter 19. He said, "Whoever touches a dead body of anyone be unclean for seven days. Must wash themselves in the water purification on the third day and the seventh day, and then he'll be clean." Okay, well, what's this water purification he mentions? Well, a few verses earlier, he tells us the priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, scarlet, and throw them on the burning heifer or cow. <laughs> that sounds bizarre. <laughs> And if you're old enough to remember the Beverly Hillbillies, it sounds like something Granny would do in the kitchen. She'd put some possum in a pot and stir it around, doing kind of weird things. That's what this passage sounds like, just a bunch of weird concoctions, put it in there. Modern scientists have looked at this and they said, no, that's not weird at all. That's really fascinating. And here's why. The cedar wood and the burning heifer ashes combine to make lye, which is a caustic soda. We call it soap. You touch a dead body, washing with soap would be a good thing. The plant converts into thiamol. That's isopropyl alcohol. Kills bacteria. You touch a dead body, killing bacteria would come in handy. The scarlet wool forms a gritty substance like an SOS pad in your kitchen or if you use orange goop, uh, it has pumice in it. It helps get uh, grease and stuff out of your hands. And then applying it on the third and the seventh day. Bacteria grow very well in a damp environment. So you want to wait a little bit for it to dry out. Then you apply this. Wait for it to dry out again, and you apply it a second time, and you're considered clean. Modern scientists say, wow, that is a great natural remedy if you don't have antibiotics that we create today. Did Moses know anything about germs and bacteria and isopropyl alcohol? Obviously not. This is evidence that God said, hey, Mo, and <laughs> you know, write it down. <laughs> Three Stooges joke, some of you got that. Um, <laughs> So Moses writes it down, and Moses is like, Dad, it's so cool. You got anything else? And God says, let me think. Yeah, I got another one. So in closing, I'll share one more with you. It's fascinating. Moses wrote about a certain Jewish tradition in Genesis 17. He said, for the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Why did Moses say the eighth day? Could have said anything. Could have said the second week, the fifth year, anything. So the 8th day, modern scientists have discovered some fascinating things about blood clotting. There are two major elements in your bloodstream that are necessary for blood clotting. You have got vitamin K and prothrombin. On a molecular level, there's actually about two dozen events that have to fire off in proper sequence to clot your blood. You miss one, you're dead. How did that evolve? By accident. Yesterday we talked about, mutations driving evolution. Mutations are accidental copying errors. So you take all the complex information in DNA and you copy it, but when you do, you just, <laughs> oops, copying errors, and that's supposed to make things better and better. How does that process produce blood clotting? Because a creature needs event A, which then will trigger event B. B triggers C, C triggers D on down the line. If some creature had A, B, and C by accident, it doesn't do anything. A, B, C, D, E, F, G doesn't do anything. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, R, R, W, A, C, C. No, two dozen in a row, all at once. It's a design feature. It cannot evolve one step at a time. On the larger level, though, we're going to get back to this. Vitamin K and prothrombin. Scientists today now know that vitamin K develops in a newborn somewhere between days 5 and 7. That's when it kicks in. Prothrombin looks like this if we graph it, and I will explain the graph. The dotted line across the top is the normal level of prothrombin in your body. The numbers across the bottom are days after birth. Scientists have discovered a baby on day one has 90% of its prothrombin. It's not bad. It's really high. But then it drops dangerously low between days two and five, down to only 30%. That is not good. On day eight, it spikes to 110% of its normal level. It will never be that high again the rest of your entire life, only on day eight. So if you are a baby and you need a surgical procedure, day eight would be the perfect day because for sure you have vitamin K by then and you have more prothrombin than you'll ever have the rest of your life. Did Moses know anything about vitamin K and prothrombin? Obviously not. This is God saying, hey, Mo, (laughs) write it down. He writes it down. A quick note, my, my wife and I have two children Uh, Our son is 27, our daughter's 25. And when my wife was pregnant with our son, our firstborn, uh, it was new to us, you know. So we went to the hospital, went to the birthing classes to learn about what to expect. And the nurse was talking, and at one point she said, if you have a baby boy and would like this procedure, we'll take him down the hall and bring him back. And I remember, as if it was yesterday, sitting there thinking, shouldn't we come back on day eight? But I was so shy, I wasn't going to say anything. And the nurse kept talking. Someone else raised their hand and said, "Hey, nurse, you, you just said that you're giving the baby a shot. Why? It's just born. Why does the baby need a shot right away?" She says, "Oh, that's vitamin K. So today they artificially introduce vitamin K immediately, and you have 90 percent of your prothrombin, so it's not an issue." My hand went up in the air all by itself, and I'm like, "Get back here!" <laughs> and it went up, and the nurse called to me, and I just, I just share. I couldn't help but share what Moses said about all this. In Scripture, I don't know if it's impressive to people or not, but it was an opportunity to talk about the inspiration of the Bible. <laughs> and, and this is just amazing. This is just one example. We're just scratching the surface. The Bible passes this test of scientific foreknowledge. In fact, it passes all four tests of internal consistency, historical accuracy, prophetic accuracy, and scientific accuracy. Did you know that 27% of the Bible is prophetic in nature? That's over 8,000 passages covering about 700 topics and it has a 100% track record. Some of the prophecies are for our future yet. All the other ones have come true in 100%, every single minute details. How is that possible? This God is inspiring these writers. So do Christians have faith that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Yes, we do. But it is an incredibly reasonable faith backed up by so much evidence. In fact, if you want to believe that the Bible is not the inspired Word of God, In the immortal words of Ricky Ricardo, (laughs) you got a lot of splaining to do. (laughs) How is it that you have about 40 authors writing over a period of 1,600 years on three different continents and three different languages, all different educational backgrounds, covering hundreds of controversial topics, and they all agree with each other? How'd they get all the prophecy right? How'd they get all the history right? How'd they get all the science right? My faith is not strong enough to believe it's not the inspired word of God. (laughs) That would be a blind, unreasonable faith. It makes so much sense to trust that it is what it claims to be. It's the inspired Word of God who created all this and he shared a lot of things in here that you can't get from looking at dirt and DNA. You can look at DNA conclude there must be a creator, but it, you wouldn't know who created it or why they created it, why you're here and what happens to you when you die. You can only get that if the creator left you a note. And that's what the Bible claims to be. And it gives so much evidence for that. So It's very, very exciting. We have a, a five-part series on dvd where i cover all four areas and extra stuff like okay how was the bible written how was it copied over time because of course this isn't the word of god it's been copied so many times and messed up you know how that works you, know, you, you translate and all this stuff it just gets messed up over time no not messed up over time there's so much evidence for that too so five part series on that more detail very quickly uh this is exciting our resources got a bunch of stuff back there. There's uh, three books that I've written. There's 11 physical DVDs that have 22 talks on them. And they are streamable too because DVDs are old school. So we are phasing out our DVDs. We're just trying to kind of, in a sense, get rid of them so we reduce the price greatly. This is the better part. The streamable videos, just last week we officially announced they're all free, we're just giving them away. And I am this year starting to work on 25 to 30 more videos. I'm going to be just cranking those out, and every time we finish them, add them to the list for free. We just want to get the information out there. We don't charge for our talks. We don't charge, you now for our videos. This is, it's God's ministry. He provides. It just, you know, through donations or whatever. So if you want some DVDs, that's fine. You can get some. We've got to get rid of them somehow. But you don't even have to have those. You can just go to our website, which I probably have up on the screen here again. Uh, Just go to our website and find the videos, and you can stream them. Watch them anywhere you want for free and pass it on. Give it to others. We want as many people to hear this information because we want as many people to establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as possible. And some people won't get there because they've got all these questions, which is fine. Well, now you can help, you know, open the eyes with the power of the Holy Spirit. You can help them understand these things better and establish that relationship. It's not about these factual things in Carbon-14 dating dinosaurs. It's about the gospel message in Jesus Christ. So anyway, we're excited about that. Um, You you can get that information at our table, take one of my cards or whatever. The website, again, gives you more information. If you have questions afterwards, I'll be here in the lobby for a bit. But you can always get a hold of us through the website as well um, when you have future questions. So I'm going to stop talking (laughs) because I'll go on forever. Uh, I'm going to close in a quick word of prayer. I look forward to seeing you in your lobby afterwards. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this time that we've had to take a look ultimately at the authority of your word. Thank you for giving. In your word each day, it is not easy to do, but we need to make a commitment to do that. I uh, Thank you for the graciousness and patience you show each one of us. And I also pray, God, for everyone here. Uh, I'm sure the vast majority of people sitting here this morning right now, they not only believe that you exist and believe the Bible, but they have a personal relationship with you through Jesus Christ. They have confessed their sins, asked for forgiveness. Their sins are forgiven, not by their own works or their own efforts, but through the shed blood of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. They have accepted that free gift. They have that relationship. I pray for them, God, you would be bringing someone across their path. This week, in the next seven days, God, bring someone across their path that you want them to share with and that you would... Uh, tell them in their spirit, this is a person I want you to share with and that you would give them the words to say and that they would allow the Holy Spirit to do all the heavy lifting in that conversation. And then for anyone here this morning, God, who's not quite there, uh, they're on the fence or they're even largely skeptical, I'm just really honored that they're here. This is a great place to be. I pray that they would come back next week as well and each week following. But I pray for them that today would be the day that they would say, you know what, maybe I don't know everything. Um, I do want to spend eternity with God. I know I'm not perfect. I know I could never be perfect. I am accepting this free gift that Jesus Christ offers by placing our trust in him, asking for forgiveness. Our sins are forgiven on his merit, not our own. I can spend eternity with my creator, and then I have the rest of my life to figure out some of these other interesting questions. So I pray that they wouldn't put it off another day. And we just thank you for all these things now and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.